Welcome to the Podglomerate. Oh, I don't know that I was more successful or more efficient. <laughs> I mean, I think the second novel is better than the first novel, but I think that, I, I don't know that you can like really learn from one to the other. I mean, I feel like it is like raising children. It's like, well, raising one child only teaches you how to raise that kid, right? I mean, so it doesn't really help you with the next kid. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff. And I'm Kyle. And this week on the show, we get back to Jeff's childhood roots and speak with Dara Horn who wrote a slightly religious book, I guess? I wouldn't say it's religious. It's based on religious themes. Yes, yeah. and, and the specific religion that we're talking about is Judaism. Uh, I was bar mitzvahed. I know, I know. I don't, what's the... Hey, Kyle, guess what today is? What's today? Your birthday. I am 30 years old. I was not bar mitzvahed. True. This is also the two the two-year anniversary, kind of, of the show starting. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. Neither here nor there. Dara Horn, her new book is called Eternal Life, and it is fantastic. It pulls from religious sources, which is, I think, what Jeff was getting at before. She ties together some of the threads from the Torah, which, if you, like me, are a Catholic, can be referred to as the Old Testament, which I also haven't read. Um, but it was really interesting to see events that I had heard referred to in a historical context represented through the eyes of her characters. I think she's a fantastic writer. I really love the themes that she explored in this book. Yeah, I thought it was great. It's called Eternal Life. It's from W.W. Norton, and you can buy it now wherever books are sold. Uh, you can also check out her website, darahorn.com, D-A-R-A-H-O-R-N.com, and you can see her on book tour. So let's get to it with Dara. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. This week on the show, we have Dara Horn. Welcome, Dara. Hi, thanks for having me. Dara's here. She just published a book called Eternal Life. I believe it's your fifth novel. Is that accurate? Yes. Mm-hmm. Why don't you let everybody know a little bit about uh, you know the story and you know its inception and why why it's relevant to today? Sure. So Eternal Life is a story. It's a woman. It's a novel about a woman who can't die, and. This, uh, needless to say, is not a particularly original idea, right? I mean, stories about immortal characters or, you know, we all know these kinds of books about, you know, Talk of Everlasting or The Highlander or, you know, The Epic of Gilgamesh, right? I mean, stories about immortal characters are like, you know, they're really common in literature. But if you think about those immortal stories of immortal characters, you might notice what I noticed, which is that they're never about fertile women. So um in my novel eternal life my main character is someone who has been married 45 times she's had hundreds and hundreds of children and outlived them all which makes immortality a little bit less fun um there's also one other person in the world who's in the same situation that she's in um i don't know if uh, you've had the experience of having a the bad high school girlfriend or boyfriend who like never goes away never gets the hint never leaves you alone Imagine that they really never go away and they're stalking you for thousands of years, always hoping that you can get back, you'll get back together. Um, so this is really the story <laughs> of this woman. And, you know, I can if you're I can go into the you know, mechanisms of how how she and this man got into this situation. Um, but she's been living this life for 2000 years and um, things have been going as well as they can when you're an immortal woman who's you know dealing with. Um, outliving all of your hundreds of children until the 21st century when there start to be new technologies that are emerging that can potentially change her fate. 
And um, so when we meet her in the book, it's as sort of at the edge of this moment where she suddenly is offered this option where she may have a possibility of escape. Kyle has never read the Old Testament uh, or the new one. And uh, and I know that like quite a bit of your writing is based in, um, you know, it's it's Jewish literature, which like I've never like I understand the concept of it. But I'm always curious because I, I was, you know, raised Jewish for mitzvah. I'm not terribly religious, but is there kind of like a biblical inspiration to the story? Um I guess the short version of the answer is yes. So the way, um, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because you do find this out pretty early in the book. Um, so the way that this these characters get into this situation is because of a vow that they make in the ancient temple in Jerusalem, which was this, this was the center of Judaism um, from, you know, from the, uh, from the period sort of from the biblical period until essentially until the Romans. So you have sort of, uh, you know, about a thousand year period where this, uh, where Judaism is really based on this, essentially a sacrificial cult in this ancient temple where they're basically like slaughtering goats. Um, and this is, you know, for anyone who has even the slightest familiarity with Judaism, like, yeah, we're, we're, this is not happening anymore. Uh, it hasn't happened for 2000 years. Um, and in, you know, and, and so what's, what's interesting to me about this is that this was really this, um, relationship the relationship that the people had with god as in their perception was that this it was this entirely like really immediate and visceral and physical connection to god and so and that once the temple is destroyed by the romans the uh the the jews of ancient israel or judea have a they revolt this is historically true they revolt against rome um you know this is also you know partly you know uh Christian readers are familiar with this because this is, of course, the context for the for a lot of the Gospels is in the sort of Roman occupation of of Jerusalem. Um, the Jews revolt against Rome. Unsurprisingly, this revolt against the most powerful empire in the world does not succeed. The Romans destroy Jerusalem. They destroy this temple, and <laughs> with it, that destroys this entire sort of uh, r- religious tradition. What's amazing to me about that is that at that point, that's really the point where this religion basically should have ended because the whole religion really was based on this idea of. Of, you know this one place where one connects to God and what instead happened was that the religion was preserved in a kind of what I will call virtual reality form where it was the the emphasis on the religion was transitioned from you know this you know very physical and visceral um, kind of worship to something that was based on study and prayer and ethical deeds and so and all of that was sort of kind of supposed to be a metaphoric, way of having the same connection and the result of that is that it became sort of a portable religion um and one that could withstand all these this destruction and so many others and so in the novel what i did was i basically turned this idea into a person and so what i have in the novel is that the the plot of the novel is that these two characters who are living in this situation in roman occupied jerusalem um they have a child who is very very ill and they are wanted to save this child's life. And so in order to do this, they sort of make, basically make this bargain with God in this ancient temple. And what they are told by this high priest in this ancient temple, and this part I made up, this is not anything based in any tradition. Um, in what they, when they go to this <laughs> temple, they, and they make this bargain with God mediated by this high priest who says to them, God will allow your child to live. The price of this is your own deaths meaning they have to sacrifice their death to allow their child to live. 
and, you know, being parents who want to preserve their child's life at all costs, they don't really think about this and they say, of course, you know, how could I say no? And it's only much, much, much later that they realize what they actually have gotten themselves into. Um, so that's the sort of historical context to it. There is also, um, there's a, a legend that in um, in the Jewish tradition about the sort of transition from this temple culture to this uh you know, culture of study and prayer, which is about a first century sage whose name is Yochanan ben Zakkai. And this was a man who had himself, he faked his own death. When he saw that all was lost in fighting against the Romans, he had himself smuggled out of the siege city of Jerusalem in a coffin and brought to the Roman general Vespasian. And he then popped out of the coffin and says to the Roman general Vespasian, vivat imperator, meaning long live the emperor, Vespasian, in addition to being confused about why this guy's popping out of a coffin, is like, um, oh, and by the way, I'm not the emperor and you should be executed for disrespecting me this way. Two minutes later, a messenger comes into the room and tells Vespasian, we just received word that Nero has died in Rome and you have to be, you have to go back to Rome to become the emperor. So having given him this prophecy, Vespasian offers this sage Yochanan anything he could desire, and what he says he desires is to create this academy outside of Jerusalem of sages who are going to preserve this tradition. At the time, that seems like the stupidest thing you could possibly do. It's like you're given any wish you want by the general who's putting down the revolt. How about let's end the, you know, how about let's not destroy the city? But instead, he sort of, you know, he picks this other thing, which seems like a stupid whim, but which ends up being the thing that makes it possible for this tradition essentially to survive its own death. So, yeah, so there's, so this is a story that's about these two people. The novel is a story about these two people who, you know, bet everything on the survival of their child, including their own deaths. Um, but it is also kind of, it's a metaphor for this episode of Jewish history. But I think it's also sort of a, a larger metaphor for what we always are seeking in our lives, right? Because, you know, everyone has this urge to live forever. It's a very natural human inclination to kind of defeat death. In a sense, literature itself is a way of trying to defeat death. Um, but, you know, the successful means of doing that are, are ways that are, are through ideas that can survive beyond us. In one sense, this is kind of like historical fiction. Uh, but in another, I mean, it's totally not. Uh, and I don't really, um, I don't know, has anybody asked you about that? Because I don't necessarily know how to differentiate. The well, two. so this is a story that's mostly a contemporary story, and it has this sort of historical backstory. So the the historical element, you know, I mean, I did do the same research I would do for a historical novel where, you know, you have to go find out what people were eating and that kind of thing and, you know, get all of those details accurate. And that was important to me. Um, but the, the vast majority of the book takes place in contemporary America and is very much engaged with this idea of why people want to live forever, which is, of course, something that's very new, right? I mean, this is something that is, uh, you know, you have these uh, Silicon Valley companies now that are all investing in life extension research and longevity research. And, you know, you have people like Peter Thiel who want to, uh, you know, as he puts it, solve the problem of death. Um, so, you know, this is a really contemporary story, but of course, it's also a very, you know, eternal story. It also feels like a modern twist on uh, a theme that's pretty prevalent. And one of my favorite uh, takes on this twist was that Rachel is very unhappy with the idea of eternal life, uh, but her counterpart is not the the sort of high school stalker who survives literally everything you could possibly throw at him. Um, it seems like a very modern take on immor immortality. 
um, well, yes. So these two characters, um, whose names are Rachel and Elazar, um, they, yes, this woman is really feels very burdened by this and is sort of really looking for a way out, um, you know, and whereas this man is sort of delighted by this and is sort of like, you know, yay, now I can, you know, pursue my tr one true love forever and ever and ever, <laughs> um, you know, which is, you know, uh, you know, I, I mean, to me, it's funny, um, but yes. it's also, I think, you know, having the main character as a woman, I think really changes it from a lot of, uh, you know, those sort of typical stories about, um, immortal characters because um historically at least women's lives have been so defined by their obligations toward others instead of their own ambitions and so for this man who's been around for 2000 years it's sort of like you know in every generation he could sort of become something new and this woman sort of really just keeps finding herself being constantly entangled with new families um and that's in a sense i mean she has and and she I, you know at some point she has the option of you know, no longer having hundreds and hundreds of children. Um, but in a sense, that's that's what her life has become and that's what her life is about. Um, and to me, that's sort of the more, the was a really interesting thing about writing these characters was thinking, because what you're really asking is, well, what's the purpose of being alive? Like, why do you want to live forever? What, why is that something that, that appeals to anyone? And of course, the appeal of eternal life would only be if, you know, it, it wouldn't be appealing if you were going to outlive everyone you love. Well, there was also another interesting point of tension between Elzar and Rachel on the topic of religion. And it's a, in this particular instance where it would seem that the, the pact that, or the vow that they made was jumpstarted by God. It, the, the way that you took it with both of them was sort of an interesting contrast because Elzar, I think ended up challenging the concept of God, or at least he did through like Twitter flame wars <laughs> Yes. Um, and Rachel seemed to hold to her faith, even like begrudgingly, I guess. Well, I mean, I think they're both aware. I mean, they both are living lives where there is some kind of supernatural component to their lives that they can't deny. Um, and I think that one way of thinking about that is, um, you know, to me, it isn't so much about a supernatural component to your life or, or a spiritual component to your life. It's more about an awareness of one's own limits. And I mean, this is something, you know, whether you're religious, atheist, anything in between, um, you know, uh, the aspect of life that is sort of leaves us in awe is the fact that we are limited, right? When we come, what, what, you know, the moment when we are most, you know, amazed by our lives and our world is that moment when we come to the very edge of what we can know or what we can understand, um, in a, both a positive and a negative way, right? Um, whether it's, you know, confronting a tragedy or confronting a, a triumph, it's that, or or just confronting sheer beauty, that's, it's those moments when we reach the limits of our own understanding when we are, you know, most, most moved. Um, you're right, though, that, um, so Elazar in his uh, current incarnation, you know, he, he, <laughs> he starts out as the son of the high priest, and he becomes an internet troll. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and <laughs> Which of makes course, so much sense. Yes, of course. And, you know, what he, you know, and, and, and he gets involved in these flame wars with, uh, you know, scientists who are involved in this uh, life extension research, and, um, you know, or, or anyone who, and he basically tells these people his whole life story, um, which they think is a joke. Um, and, you know, at one point someone says to him, you know, gives them so at one point, one, one of his, uh, you know, someone who's, uh, part of this flame war with him on Twitter is, uh, basically, 
accusing him, you know, he throws at him like every bromide that every person has ever thrown at anyone who's facing something incomprehensible, you know, or there's just a <laughs> series of tweets where it's like, you know, everything happens for a reason. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. This is your chance to build character. God has a plan for you. And of course, Elazar's reply is, God definitely has a plan for me. That is exactly my problem. <laughs> <laughs> so but whereas yeah Rachel's faith I mean so both of them have this kind of it's not even faith it's really just fact and for them so for them it's the fact that they know they are that they, they know that there's you know something that they can't control in their lives and it's the the reality though is of course all of us know that there are things we can't control in our lives it's just the question of how quickly we admit it well I thought was what was cool about it was that there was in in many discussions on the internet, especially among like atheists and religious people, is the the lack of concrete proof. And here, Rachel and Elzar both have concrete proof, and it does them no good exactly. on the greater question of why. Like, sure, yes. the 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 how is there, but the why is still unanswered. And over the course of two thousand years, is driving both of them insane. Yes, and of course, I mean, and there's one uh, 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 passage early in the book where um, Rachel kind of plows through all of these ideas where. Um, like what is the purpose of being alive and she sort of goes through all of the sort of most typical answers to that question and sees that all of them are really tied to mortality right like what is mm-hmm. the purpose of being alive well to you know uh, to leave the world a better place than where you found it and she's like well that's great if you're planning on leaving <laughs> right in a sense it's like right. well you know part of your purpose in life is to is is you know to make yourself superfluous right is to give of whatever abilities and talents you have to people who will come after you so that you won't be needed right i mean well if that's the definition of a life well lived then that's impossible for someone who lives forever and so many of the things that we think of as sort of the purpose of being alive you know to serve others or to pursue happiness i mean all of these things are sort of contingent on the on a few things that that are you know uh, one is on the temporality of life, right? That, you know, you're pursuing happiness, but it's like, well, there isn't sort of an eternal happiness, right? I mean, like what makes us happy is the dynamism of things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you like that things change and, you know, that you have this opportunity to progress in whatever it is you hope to achieve. Um, Or, you know, our connections to others are really dependent on vulnerability, right? Because, I mean, you know, it's one thing to have relationships with other people that are based on just, you know, companionship or, or sexual chemistry. Um, but, you know, why would you want to commit to one person? Why do people want to get married? Um, you know, I think that at, at the base of that is some awareness that you don't want to just spend time with someone else because you enjoy spending time with them, but because you know that there will be some point in your life where, you're, when you, where you'll yeah. need someone else. Right. I mean, that's the the base, the the basis of love and intimacy is vulnerability and, you know, being needed and needing someone else. And, you know, if you don't have that vulnerability, if if everyone was immortal, like what would be the purpose of love? Yeah, it was really interesting because, I mean, you you called, uh, you know, Elazar like the creepy like high school boyfriend. But I mean, I, I really read it is if, you know, this was a love story. And I mean, I think it touches on what you just mentioned with the, you know, relying on somebody else for, for, you know, your, their vulnerabilities. Um, You know, there are a lot of different ways to approach this, it seems like. 
Yes, so. well, right. So, right, there's some readers have read this book as an epic tale of true love, and some have read it as an epic <laughs> tale of stalking. And I mean, I guess it kind of depends on your point of view. I mean, and both of those pieces are in there, right? I mean, it isn't, you know, it isn't as clear cut as, oh, she's running away from him and he's running toward her. It is, they are interdependent. They, they do need each other because the, no one else in the world understands what they're going through. I mean, I guess my question for you is like, why this book and why now? Well, so this is going to sound bizarre since it's such a supernatural premise, but this is actually, I would say, of all of my novels, my most autobiographical book. And I'm not an autobiographical writer. My other novels have been about uh, civil war spies, art heists, a kidnapped software developer. I mean, like, I'm not a person who, like, takes my life and turns it into a novel. Um, and you probably would think that a novel about an immortal woman is probably not that autobiographical either. <laughs> um, but actually my immortal, uh, heroine and I actually have quite a bit in common. Um, I don't have 400 children, but I do have four and it kind of feels like the same thing. Um, you know, there's a, a, a I think a lot of parents have this idea that, um, you know, that, that child rearing, there, there's this bromide that, you know, oh, you know, raising children, it goes by so fast. Um, you know, that's that the more children you have, the less true that is. And um, I, you know, I have this, you know, I have to say like, you know, 10 and a half continuous years of changing diapers. Like that was that thing about it going so fast is not my experience. Um, you know, and I was just felt so strange, you know, to see, you know, friends of mine who maybe had one or two children who were just sort of like moving through this process of raising their children. And for me, it was like, I just kept resetting the clock. And I mean, you know, it's like, I'm going to be the tooth fairy until my own teeth fall out. And sort of thinking of feeling, you know, really you know, um, like time wasn't moving for me. It was moving for other people, but not for me. Um, so that was one piece of it. Um, another piece of it also was even just the idea of writing about parenthood, um, which is, and you know, and this comes to the subject of your, um, you know, of this program of writers who don't write or can't write. Um, you know, of course, you know, we live in this culture now where everyone shares everything, so to speak. And there is a whole sort of subculture of that that's about parents talking about their children, right? People were posting all these pictures of their kids on Facebook or, you know, endless blog posts about how I, you know, got my kid to eat vegetables or whatever. You know, this is like, this is a vast subculture of this. Um, you know, and, and I think like, you know, in a lot of ways, that's a wonderful thing because I think, you know, the experience of raising children can be very isolating and very, um, you know, you, you it's very easy to get like driven insane by like, you know, being with these people who, you know, you're, you know, who are, who are irrational, very irrational all the time. And, you know, to be able to sort of share that experience with other parents who are going through the same thing. I mean, that's a very powerful thing. Um, so, you know, I mean, I have four kids. I'm a writer. This should have been kind of natural for me to write about my children. I could never do that. And I never have. I mean, I, and at first it was really just because of, I'm, I just wasn't interested in sort of exposing anyone. I didn't, you know, I always felt like, you know, I felt like it would be unfair to my kids to like, you know, post something about them online or write about them, you know, that they don't have a choice of what I'm writing about, you know, like they're not, you know, they are people who are going to grow up and read this at some point if they choose. Um, so there was that piece, but then there also was this piece that what I discovered also by having a larger family was that I started not believing in the premise, right? Because the premise of this kind of parenting culture is that raising children is really a common experience 
that, you know, we're all in this together and, you know, what, you know, here's what I did that worked. You should try that. That'll work for you too. And, you know, what I basically discovered, like, is that, you know, when you have like, you know, more than one or two kids, you see that like, you know, you do one thing and it's like, it work. it works for one kid. It doesn't work for the other two. And, you know, well, this, you know, you know, one kid just, you know, you try everything and nothing works or, you know, and then what does it even mean for something to work? Um, you know, you start questioning the whole premise because you sort of see like, you know, it's like when somebody has one or two kids and, you know, those kids come out or, or, or able to comply with whatever the parents want the parents are like you know pat themselves on the back and are like i did a great job but i'm like i start thinking i'm like actually it's probably just like a small sample size right like it's almost like a coincidence because when you have a larger family you sort of see like well no actually there's there's not a lot you're doing that has any impact at all and you know it's just sort of like it was astonishing to me to see that and realize like well you know, and this is something like, I don't, you know, I, this is the story I can't tell, right? This is the story I can't write because, you know, it, it undermines the whole premise of what we're supposed to be doing as parents. And so this, this novel was really my way of writing about it because um, in this character, you know, I have, there's, and this is, you know, I won't give this away, but there are plot reasons in the book why she can't share with anyone what she's going through. Right. It essentially mm. is a secret that she has been here for 2000 years. Um, and that experience felt very familiar to me because I sort of had this, you know, raising a larger family. It's just it's just a very different experience from raising a smaller family. And it felt like I, I felt like I had this sort of awareness of the limits of my own control that other parents might not have. You have given me a special and renewed appreciation for my own parents who also had four children. <laughs> and they lived um, to tell the tale. <laughs> and they lived to tell the tale. And when I, you know, when you're younger, you don't always appreciate yeah, how difficult it must have been. But I think back now, and by the time they were my age, they had four children. I have none um, who were like at least three. So it's a, the, 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 the idea of four children at all is terrifying. It is. <laughs> um, but having watched my brother go through a similar transition, he now has three. He just had his third last year. Um, with the first child, they were very much, uh, I guess, helicopter parents, but in a good way, you know, because you're concerned about everything that he does, whether or not you're feeding him right. And now that they have three, they're, they're in that situation that I think you just described where it's like, we don't, we have no idea what works. You just you're 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 in the thick of it and if it gets the child to go to bed without screaming at you for two hours consider it a success and move on to the next day i mean and and really just you realize that there isn't a lot more you can do besides love them that is a beautiful thought and uh to my parents i am particularly sorry for the last 25 years Jeff, tell me a little bit more about CastBox. What is CastBox? So CastBox is an app that you can listen to podcasts on. It's available basically anywhere that you would ever want to listen to a podcast. iOS, Android, desktop. It also works with Google Home and Amazon Alexa. Uh, There are ranked lists and categories that will tell you what's hot right now. Uh, They have a lot of editor's choice suggestions. They have some featured shows. Uh, And one of my favorite features is you can actually do in-app search. Uh, So you can you know, search a podcast based on 
words or topics that you like uh, and the search function will actually pull those out um, from episodes or shows specifically so you know say i want to learn about bitcoin it'll tell me all of the different shows out there that are talking about bitcoin uh, so that i don't get caught in in a, a maze of my own habits it sounds useful <laughs> yeah it, it's pretty great download the Castbox app today and try it The flip side of this is you're discussing one of the main tensions that actually kickstarted the show, which is the fear of writing about people who are close to you with the idea that they will eventually read it. So were there specific strategies that you had when you started tackling parts of the story that were more personal? Well, I mean, the big strategy is like cloak it all in this ridiculously impossible supernatural premise. So, you know, I mean, no one's going to mistake this for an autobiographical book when it's about someone who's been alive for 2000 years. Um, so that's that's a big strategy for that. I don't think anyone's going to mistake anyone in that book um, for me. Um, or for any of my children. Um, you know, and also, you know, but there must be I was gonna say there must be details that certain people in your life will recognize when they read it. Maybe, um, it's possible. <laughs> um, that's a, that's my great yeah, fear. Yeah, but you know, there's always a deniability involved in it, and uh, you know, look, I mean, the the main the the main person that I'm, you know, there's I'm I'm really only critical of myself if if it's a. Um, you know, it's not that I'm exposing someone, you know, someone else's flaws. It's really uh, an awareness of my own limitations. Yeah, I think that's one of the struggles personally is when you, you, for me personally, it's taking a shared experience that you have with someone else and applying your own lens to it. And you never know. It's impossible to know really what sort of lens the other person looks at that same experience through. And so that that's the that's always the fear with me is misrepresenting something or someone with my own personal uh, bias. But I guess that's less of a problem if, for instance, you're setting the scene uh, against the backdrop of the burning of the temple in yeah, Jerusalem. Yeah, well, I mean, no one's going to be... You know, no one's going to think this is about them. Um, the other thing I've sort of discovered, though, less in this book than in other books, um, is that... Um, never underestimate other people's narcissism because um, sometimes, you know, people are so thrilled to be in a book that they don't even notice <laughs> that it may not be the most positive uh, portrayal. I remember with my first book, I, I was very nervous because I had a character in the book who was um, very much based on someone who I knew really as an acquaintance. It was a, an elderly man I had known when I was a teenager. And I essentially put him in the book, but I, oh, I put all kinds of caveats in the acknowledgments, you know, saying, you know, I was inspired by this one thing, but of course it's a different person and blah, blah. And I was terrified of, about this. And I remember when, when it came out, I sent him a copy and said, you know, with also a letter saying, you know, this isn't you, but I was inspired by your, you know, it, it was something about him. He had traveled around the world and had taken photographs of communities around the world or something. And so, you know, there was sort mm -hmm. of like a concrete fact that was related to him. And I could pretend that the rest of his personality was not there, even though it was. Um, and I remember <laughs> I had like a, an event for the book, like a launch event, and he came to it and 
he was like over the moon thrilled that he was like telling everyone at this event, you know, I'm the main character in this book. I'm so, you know, I, I'm so honored that she put me in her book. I mean, it was like astounding. I'm like, you know, did you read it? And it's like, I guess he did, but he, he didn't care. I mean, it was amazing to me. And, um, you know, and, and, and then I, and I know it really was true because um, when he passed away, I, I um, paid a condolence call in his home and I hadn't been to his home in many years. And when I went there, my book was displayed on a table when you come into their home. And his widow told me, you know, every person who came into this house, he would tell them the first thing he would ever tell them is I was the main character in this book. And um, actually it, it happened to me twice. So I would think this is just one kooky guy, but no, it happened to me twice. Um, Cause I had another novel where um, one of the characters in the novel is Marc Chagall, the artist Marc Chagall. And um, before that book was published, my publisher got a phone call from Chagall's granddaughter and who demanded to see an advanced copy of the book. And I have to say, in my opinion, this was not a particularly flattering portrait of Chagall, um, just in terms of his personality. Um, and I was terrified when I got this phone call, because this is someone, she's not only his granddaughter, she also, um, she's an art historian, she's the executor of his estate, she's involved in authenticating his paintings. I mean, this is someone who really... It's not just that he's her grandfather. This is really very much her professional life. And I remember being totally terrified. And But then um, a couple weeks later, I get this like, oh, gushing email from her about how beautiful this was and how this was such an amazing portrayal of her grandfather. And I'm like, wow, well, I mean, maybe that was how he really was. <laughs> She's like, you really captured him. I'm like, okay, I guess I did. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I think we overestimate a lot of times, um, you know, how offended people will be when we put them in our books, because a lot of people are just like, you know, that's their, they're, they're excited to be in a book. So Dara, we, we didn't really talk much about, you know, your early career and how you started and, and became like a, a writer by trade. So do you, I know that we don't have a ton of time, but do you want to give us kind of the cliff notes? Um, sure. So, um, my subject as a writer has always been time. And this is really goes back to my childhood. I was sort of always had this, um, I, I always was disturbed by the idea that time passes and doesn't return. And this is the kind of thing where when I was a child, I would get into bed at the end of the day and just think, well, this day is disappeared. Where did it go? And this troubled me so much that I started writing really as a way of capturing time. So I was writing, you know, sort of journals and notebooks and things like that and diaries. And, you know, I think probably most people would write a diary sort of to, you know, explore their own feelings or something like that. And that was like, I never cared about my own feelings. What I cared about was like preserving these moments and, you know, even it wouldn't even have to be anything, you know, special, but just, you know, things I observed, things, something I, somebody said to me, a joke I thought was funny, a story I heard from a friend, um, you know, something interesting that happened during the day. And I just, it, it, it was sort of this manic thing where I was just recording all these things all the time. And so when I got older, I kind of, my natural inclination was to think that I, I want to be a journalist. Um, but what happened was I sort of, I had an opportunity after college, I um, I was very fortunate to win a scholarship to spend a year at Cambridge University in England. And um, the so that was a, a wonderful thing. And the 
terrible thing about it was that I also had just gotten engaged to get married and the person I was marrying was in the United States and wasn't going to join me that year. And so it ended up being a, a year where I spent a lot of time by myself. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of warm beer and crazed soccer hooligans. And so, you know, that like, you know, when you live in England for a year and you're not into those things, that cuts you out of a lot of the social life. And so I sort of had all this time on my hands. And so at one point I started, I, I had these notebooks that I was sort of compulsively writing in all the time, which at that point, by the time, you know, then I was already an adult and I was sort of thinking them more as like, these are ideas for nonfiction magazine pieces, let's say. But at one point I was sort of just reading through one of these notebooks and I sort of noticed like that a lot of this anecdotes and things that I was collecting, there were common threads between them and that all I needed was to sort of create a character that would connect them. And that was how I started writing the first novel. So I like never wrote any fiction until I wrote my first novel. Like I was never a person who was like, you know, going to creative writing class. I mean, I don't think I even never took a creative writing class. Um, you know, so I really just started writing these novels. And so, yeah. And then, and now I'm, uh, you know, this is novel number five. Um, I mean, I still do write, I, I write nonfiction also. Um, but I'm, what really interests me in writing is basically this idea of time. And so all of my novels in one way or another are exploring this idea of time, um, whether it's through writing historical fiction or writing about sort of ways that we record things, ways that we try to store memories. Um, you know, I have all my novels in some sense involve um artists or creators of some kind, people who are engaged in this kind of work. So um, I had a novel about um, about an art, about Mark Chagall. I had a novel about artists and writers um, and about sort of museum workers who were trying to preserve their work. Um, so that was a novel about, you know, the plot was about an art heist. Um, I had a novel about uh, Civil War spies, but who become spies because of their work as actors. Um, so this was also sort of this idea of how do we preserve the past and how much of what we're um, the way we understand the past is some kind of a performance. Um, and then I had a novel about uh, a, a novel called A Guide for the Perplexed that was about a software developer who creates an app that records everything you do. And so that was a story about, um, you know, and, and it go, that one also goes back in time to the Middle Ages to a medieval archive and sort of looking at data storage then and now, what we save and why we save it. So I'm not like a slice of life writer. I'm not like really interested in sort of, you know, people's daily emotions and that kind of thing. But what interests me is um, I like I like throwing readers into a story that really forces them to confront this question of like, well, what does it mean to live in a world that outlasts us? Um, can we back up just a, a little bit? Because I want to know, he, hearing that you hadn't really written fiction before you wrote your first book, I want to know what the editing process was like for that first novel and how sort of how long it took, what the process was like, how much you actually ended up rewriting, I guess, with the help of your first editor. Um, well, so the first novel was a book called In the Image, and it was about um, it was about an old man and a young woman who meet in the beginning of the book, and then the book goes forwards in her life and backwards in his life, and there's all these connections between their lives they aren't aware of. Um, so that was sort of the structure of the book. And in terms of editing, I mean, I think I, with the first book, I ended up writing, I think, too short. And so the what editing I did was sort of adding more, um, I ended up adding more, uh, chapters that sort of fleshed out parts of the story, um, 
one thing that I did do with that novel that was the main the main change that I made to it was I had written it in first person, which I think is sort of a rookie mistake. I think a lot of people think that it's easier to write in first person. It feels more natural. Um, it doesn't usually work for fiction, in my opinion. I think that unless you, what you're writing is unless it's all about the voice of the character, um, you lose a lot by writing in first person. And so I actually went back and changed every single sentence of that novel and changed it wow. into third person. So that was a pretty big, and you know, I made the same mistake twice too. It happened with my third novel also that I wrote it in first person and then I went back and changed it all to third person. I'm never going to do that again. So I, you know, I mean, I do learn from some of my mistakes, <laughs> um, but otherwise, you know, the edit, I don't know, editing is sort of, I mean, it's, you know, these books are, I mean, I, I, my books are like children in that they're all different and they all have different problems so that, um, you know, are different things that are easy and things that are things that come easily and things that are difficult. Um, so like the first novel, you know, the story was in a sense too short and needed to be developed more. But then my second novel, I mean, when I, it was 700 pages long in the, in the, the final form, it's like, I don't know, it's like 280 or something. So it's, uh, I ended up just like, I, I mean, I kill whole characters off. I mean, there was like many characters I eliminated and whole storylines that I eliminated. So, um, you know, every book has its own problems and challenges. It's like, you know, it's really a different, each one is a different, a different, cre a, a different creature. As a new author writing your first book, what were some of the things you learned to help you carry forward into that second book to make you more successful, more efficient? Oh, well, I don't know that I was more successful or more efficient. <laughs> I mean, I think the second novel is better than the first novel. Um, but I think that um, I don't yeah, I don't know that I, I I don't know that you can like really learn from one to the other. I mean, I feel like it is like raising children. It's like, well, raising one child only teaches you how to raise that kid. Right. I mean, so it doesn't really help you with the next kid. Um, you know, I think that, I mean, except in is, confidence. Is that, is that totally true? It helps with com well, it helps with confidence. Right. I mean, you know, you you realize I mean, that's and, and that is enormous. Right. I mean, that, I don't want to undersell that. I mean, that's you know that you now know that you you can write a novel. Right. I mean, that was not obvious and that was not a given when you started. So. I mean, I, I've never written a novel nor had a child, so I, I don't know. But <laughs> same. But I, it makes sense. To, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it just makes sense to me that you know, as with everything else, you kind of get better. Yeah. At well, practice. sort of. Yes. Um, but I think that it's 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 not though because each one. I mean, you're. I mean, I guess if you were writing, I guess if I were the kind of writer who was really sort of writing the same book again and again. I mean, or the same structure, or like you know, if I was writing like a mystery novel and each one was a mystery where it started with you know, a particular crime. And then there, I had a detective who, you know, if there was like something I was doing where it really was like a very fixed structure, then I guess that would be possible. But what I've actually done with each of my novels is like each one, I challenge myself to do something really different with it. And I mean, part of this is, you know, it's basically just because I'm kind of easily bored. Like I don't really want to be doing, you know, I mean, it takes like a few, couple years to write a novel and I don't really, you know, once I write that novel, it's like, I don't want to go back and write that novel again. Um, so I'm interested in doing something different and sort of pushing myself to try something new with each book. Um, so, you know, I think that in terms of, I mean, I guess, look, I mean, with this book, um, I, when I finished it, I handed it into my editor something truly amazing happened when she she came back to me and was sort of like I basically have no changes I think this is perfect and I did not believe her <laughs> I mean I then you know <laughs> I then went and showed it to a friend and I was like is this you know what do you think um but I mean you know that certainly didn't happen with my first book um you know so I mean I think I am I, I, I've sort of you know I have gotten good at this in that sense but um yeah, yeah but I no I never but I never like uh I never took these you know, creative writing classes or, you know, these workshops and things like that was never part of my life as a writer at all. Your name has been, I, I used to work in publishing and your name has just been kind of 
I've I've heard of you many times before. This was not like an isolated incident when this book showed up, um, and and that's not that's not the case with other authors. So um, you're doing something right. So congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I do. I honestly do want to continue. No, I I honestly do want to continue talking about uh, your your career and process a lot more. However, uh, we are running a little bit out of time. So I thought that you know now is as good a time as any to discuss uh, this story that you sent us a few days ago. Um, that has to do with your second novel, and I don't want to give anything else away. But I was very taken by this and. Um, and I have a, a million follow-up questions for you, but I'll let you tell our listeners before I jump into it. Sure. Um, so this is perhaps one of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me after publishing a book. Um, so I this was my I published my second novel. So this is a while ago. Um, I published my second novel called The World to Come, and it's about an art heist. It's about the theft of a Chagall painting from a museum during a singles cocktail party. And I had gotten, I mean, so it's like kooky idea. Of course, you know, art is, you know, far more normal than real life because I got this idea from a story in the New York Times. This was a theft that actually had happened. Like there was a it was at the Jewish Museum in New York City. They had a Chagall show where they had like a singles mixer and somebody walked into the singles mixer and walked out with a million dollar painting by Marc Chagall, um, you know, which was like a small, it was like an eight by 10 size piece that I guess could have fit under a jacket or something. And I guess it wasn't very well alarmed. Um, and somebody walked out with this million dollar painting. Um, no, I saw that story and my thought as a novelist was sort of like, you know, that's really interesting. You know, what makes somebody walk out, walk into a singles mixer and walk out with a million dollar painting instead of someone's phone number. And I then based <laughs> my main character on this idea. And I sort of, I gave, I created this story where it was that this man walks into this uh, singles mixer and he sees this painting on the wall that he recognizes from his childhood living room. And takes it for this reason basically as a repatriation um and not really knowing the, the provenance of the painting and then the, the the novel then goes back into the life of Marc Chagall um and other um Yiddish writers who knew him and who worked with him and it sort of goes through um this artist's life and this family's life and it sort of becomes a story about you know uh appropriation and what we you know um what's what is fake and what is real in in, in art um, in art and in history. So, you know, it's, but it's, you know, the, the, the plot of it is, is based on this art heist. So I started writing that book based on the story I'd seen in the times. And then about six months later, I saw another story about it, which was that this painting had been recovered. It showed up in a mail room in Topeka, Kansas. Um, and this was only after the museum had received, um, a ransom note from something called the International Center for Art and Peace, which, by the way, doesn't exist, claiming that the painting would be returned if there was peace in the Middle East. So that didn't happen, and instead the painting showed up in a mailroom in Kansas. So, I mean, this is, like, way weirder than anything. You know, if I wrote this in a novel, it would be totally impossible. So, you know, so I, I had used this idea, and I, and I was sort of following the story. And then the novel came out, and among you know, mail from readers. I got an email that's from, I, I got an email from a man that said, I read your book, really interesting story you told about this painting. If you want to know what really happened with that painting, contact me. I was like, huh, 
that's interesting. Um, I then Googled this person's name and discovered that he was, he held the record for being the most sued doctor in the state of New York. So I was like, okay, you know, maybe this isn't the most reputable person. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm just thinking like, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to get involved in this. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm, and I just, just never wrote back. Yes, exactly. Hard pass. Exactly. So, um, Fast forward about another six months or so, or maybe a year or so, and um, I'm doing uh, promotional events for the paperback release of the book, and I'm speaking in on Long Island, and I'm actually gonna, I'm about to give a, I'm about to give a talk, um, and before I go up to the podium to give my talk, somebody, a middle-aged man, comes up to me, and says, "Hi, I'm the guy who emailed you." And I mean, at this point, this was months. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm fortunate to get a lot of mail from readers. I was like, um, help me out. I'm not really sure what you mean. And this guy says, I'm the guy who knows what happened. Here, take this. And he gives me like an envelope full of papers. And I was like, okay. And I take this envelope. And then two seconds later, I'm like called to the podium to speak. And then after that, I'm signing books. And like, you know, I don't, I didn't see this man again. And then I'm in the taxi going home after this, and I open this envelope, and it's a confession. It was written in such a way that it was, there was, to, to let's be totally straight with you, there was deniability. So, I mean, it, like, it, at the top it says, chapter one, the heist at the museum. So, I mean, it was sort of, like, presented as though it were, quote, fiction, and but it's basically a description of what happened where he talks about going to the museum for this singles event and just noticing that these paintings were really small and just wondering, you know, what would happen if he took it. And then, you know, being in the room and nobody was there and taking it off the wall and just like, you know, realizing he couldn't really put it back and walking out with it. And then having it in his apartment and not knowing what to do with it. I mean, it was like really weird. I mean, this was like, you know, and then thinking like, well, maybe I can, you know, and, and then thinking, you know, well, how can I turn this into something good and thinking, oh, this painting is owned by this Russian gallery. So, you know, maybe if I, you know, ransom it, you know, I can get the Russians to negotiate a Middle East peace deal. <laughs> like, this is getting so weird. And, you know, and then sort of six months later, realizing this Middle East peace deal wasn't going anywhere and thinking like, well, you know, I really want to return this property. And um, apparently there's this in Topeka, Kansas, it's a it's a facility where um, undeliverable mail is sent and sort of, you know, just mailing it to this facility, knowing that it would eventually be restored. And so this is what this guy had written. And I got this and I was like, I don't know what to do with this information. <laughs> so um, I, should I go on or you have questions for me? Yeah, well, you, you mentioned in, in your email that like you, after you, you know, said to yourself, like, what do I do with this? You actually like, you came to a conclusion. I did not know what to do with this information. And I was you know, I, I, I was distraught because I felt like I had been put into this position um, where none of my choices were good ones. Um, first of all, um, I felt like, well, if this is true, I mean, doesn't this person need to be prosecuted? I mean, there's got to be some kind of criminal liability for this person. 
Um, but the piece of but there was there were two other parts of this that that mitigated against that. One was that this person had presented this to me in this bizarre way with this, you know, deniability element of like chapter one, the heist at the museum. Um also it needs to be said that there was there was no information in this that wasn't that you couldn't have found in press reports, right? I mean it was not there was no um you know, there wasn't, there were no identifying details or anything that would have, you know, made it like a smoking gun, like this was for sure this person, as opposed to just someone who, for some bizarre reason beyond my ability to understand, wanted this to be about himself, um, or wanted to reveal that he knew something. Um, so there was nothing, there was no evidence that this was anything other than this person's overactive imagination. The the next piece of it was that my paperback was out, had just come out. And, you know, as many writers know, it's like whenever, you know, when you have a new book that comes out or paperback, um, you know, you're looking for opportunities to get attention for your work, right? This is, you know, unfortunately, or some people enjoy it, I guess, but for me, it's, I don't enjoy it so much. It's like, you know, you're, you, you, you know, that's why you and I are having this conversation right now, right? I mean, you're, you're looking for ways to get people interested in your work in whatever way you can. And, you know, in some, a lot of those ways are wonderful things like this, where you're, you know, talking about your book with people who are interested in reading. Um, but, you know, it occurred to me that if I were to report this, this would be a news story because it's fascinating, right? I mean, that this person, you know, came and confessed because I had written a novel based on his theft, Right. I mean, this is like a ready made news story. And I thought like, well, this would be great for me because this would be a great opportunity to publicize my book. And that was why I couldn't do it. Because I just thought like, what am I going to like send some obviously hapless and harmless person to prison for or, you know, doing for in order to sell copies or, you know, get involved in some legal battle because of I mean I don't know I just there was something that just like it felt so uncomfortable to me and what felt uncomfortable to me was that there's always sort of this when you write about things that happen in real life there's always a little and we talked about this earlier in our conversation there's always an element of exploitation that you're well I guess some people maybe enjoy it but for me it's that I'm fighting against right I mean I'm always sort of finding ways to tell tell stories that may be rooted in real life but that honor the people who lived them and there was you know there was something about the way this was presented to me by this man who you know obviously was someone who had all kinds of problems um you know unrelated to perhaps to this art heist which may or may not have happened i i just felt this overwhelming pity for this man and sort of this sense of my own power um, that, you know, suddenly I had this in my hands and like, I could do what I wanted with this man. And I just, it felt so wrong to me to use that power. And I don't know whether or not I made the right decision. Um, but, um, I do know that, um, it was about 10 years later, the Washington Post, um, asked me to do a piece about, there was some big art heist in the Netherlands at a museum in the Netherlands. And they asked me to do an op-ed about art heists and, uh, at that point, it was 10 years had passed and the statute of limitations was over. And at that point, I realized it was, you know, it was felt okay to tell this story. But um, I, I don't know whether I made the right decision about that or not. But I know that I felt deeply uncomfortable about how life was imitating art or even maybe being guided by art. So when when this piece came out, 
did you ever hear back from uh from this gentleman no <laughs> no i didn't i mean you know it was it, it was bizarre i mean and uh yeah if i did i don't think i would i think i would have avoided him so so you have no idea what happened to this man <laughs> no no um but i as i said in that piece i'm like you know i think that everybody in some I, and what 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 missed what the part about it that mystified me the most was that he really he obviously deeply wanted me to feel that this that this book was about him right i mean he wanted yeah i mean and and at this moment when he handed me sort of his version of the story as i put it in this article i mean he at that moment he was an original and there must have been a part of him that wanted you to report him to the police. Like, that has to be in the back of his Maybe? mind, right? Because you can't confess to ever. Like, he went so far to guard against that possibility that it seems like he knew it was inevitable at some point. No, no, I don't, I don't, know, what was, I don't know what was motivating him. I mean, but I, but I think that, um, you know, I think that, you know, people have an urge to, when they have a story to tell, they need to tell it. And, you know, if they're, and I guess this was his way of telling it. This is the only way I can explain it. I mean, get that man on the podcast. It's, uh, <laughs> well, he's also the most sued doctor in the state of New York. So I'm sure he has many, many stories to tell. <laughs> Dara, where, where can our listeners find you online? Um, so I have a website, darahorn.com, that um, tells you all about my books and also um, it, about appearances I'll be doing around the country. I am uh, sort of in the middle of a book tour. So uh, uh, if I'm going to be in your town, I'd love to meet you. And uh, I'm intermittently on social media. But as you may have gleaned from this conversation, I'm a, I'm a pretty private person. And so uh, I don't I don't I, I don't spend too much time online. <laughs> but I hope if I'm going to be in your in your area, I'd love to meet you in person. Thank you so much for joining us, and, uh, and you know we really appreciate the time. Thank you. That was another episode of Writers Who Don't Write. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this episode is with Dara Horn, who is an author from WW Norton. You can find her website at darahorn.com, D-A-R-A-H-O-R-N, where you can find tour dates and events so that you can visit her in a city near you. You can find us online at www.podcast.com or at the Podglomerate, a network where you will find your next favorite show. Uh, I recommend Consumed with Scott Porch if you enjoy the interviews that you do here. His are very similar but much more seasoned and expanded beyond just novelists and creatives. We also want to thank Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library who wrote the music that you heard in the top and the bottom of the hour. You can find him at hollandpatentpubliclibrary.com. We want to thank Ben Sound of bensound.com, who did the music that you heard in the middle of the show. We'll see you in two weeks. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.